from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. We're on the road with a taste of Canada this weekend. That's as U.S. Farm Report is on the road from Grain Farmers of Ontario, March Classic here in London. And here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. A short-lived Canadian rail strike means one crisis was averted. That's incredibly impactful, not just for Canadian, but U.S. farmers as well. But another crisis is unfolding as vital fertilizer shipments for spring are stranded by sanctions in Russia. Just days away from USDA's prospective plantings report, and the acreage debate is really heating up. A business that sprouted from social media. It's Farmer Belt, right from the ground up. How Andy Clean may be coming to a John Deere dealer near you. And in John's world, maybe we could stop changing time twice a year. Now for the news, a rail strike in Canada was short-lived, and that's one bit of good news for fertilizer availability here in Canada, as Russian sanctions are placing a halt on inputs just ahead of the spring planting season. A contract dispute between Canadian Pacific Railway and its union, the Canadian Teamsters, led to a worker strike over the weekend. But by Tuesday, Canadian Pacific announced it had reached a deal and entered into a binding arbitration with the workers' union. The Fertilizer Institute says the United States imports 86% of its potash from Canada, the majority of it by rail. And U.S. fertilizer prices last week were nearly 10% higher than just the week before. That's according to the Green Markets North America Fertilizer Price Index, rising to the highest price point ever recorded, more than $1,200 a short ton. Right now, prices are estimated to be 40% higher than just a month ago. And in Ukraine, there are reports planted acres in the country could fall by half this spring. Reuters saying the country's ag minister, who resigned this week, announced farmers may only be able to plant about 7 million hectares this year versus 15 million last year before the Russian invasion. And here at home, farm groups are urging USDA to allow farmers to put land back into production that had been set aside for Conservation Reserve Program in order to help fill the void when it comes to Ukraine. Seven ag groups sending a letter to Secretary Tom Vilsack asking the agency to provide flexibility to farmers to plant on more than 4 million acres of farmland currently enrolled in the Conservation Reserve Program without penalty. It's now been a month since the war started in Ukraine, and as more Ukrainians evacuate for safety, one commodity analyst based in Ukraine is sharing her story. The International Organization for Migration says more than 3 million people have fled Ukraine since the invasion started. UN officials are calling it the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. One of those who evacuated, Elena Naroba, a commodity analyst from Ukraine. In an exclusive interview with Aga Market Consulting, as she talks about the frantic effort she made to evacuate the country with her son. I woke up when I heard a huge explosion, and I just woke up my son, take a, uh, a key from my car, and that's all. Set of documents, and that's all. We left country immediately. We spent uh, uh, almost 24 hours to get to the uh, Ukrainian-Poland border. Elena is now safe in Europe, but says several family members remain behind in Ukraine and in shelters. As for farmers in the country, she says she believes they have enough seeds and fertilizer, but the key problem is fuel. She's expecting a 30 to 35 percent cut in production this year if the war continues for another month. 
She says Ukraine consumes just 4% of what the country produces. All the rest is exported to the world and a key buyer such as India, China, as well as the EU. Well, adding to the worries for some farmers in the U.S. right now, more cases of a deadly bird flu, with USDA confirming highly pathogenic avian influenza in a flock of 570,000 commercial broiler chickens in Butler County, Nebraska. It marks the first commercial flock confirmed in the state with the illness. Now, it brings the number of states with commercial flocks infected to eight and total cases to 51. In less than three weeks, more than 10 million egg-laying hens have died in outbreaks of the virus across the country. More than 175 wildfires broke out across Texas last week, just ahead of much needed rains. And more than 100,000 acres now bear the scars of the aftermath. Well, the largest of the fires known as the Eastland Complex, which started as four initial fires, the area 120 miles west of Dallas. And here you can see one rancher believed to be in the area of Carbon, Texas, where the Eastland Complex is working hard earlier this week to try to push his cows away from the flames. Farmers in the area report many lost about every bale of hay they had. They're asking for donations. The area did see some moisture later in the week that helped calm the fires. And far the west, drought is spelling bad news for farmers who rely on irrigation. California state water officials have announced what areas will even get water from state reservoirs this year. Well, state officials say they're only able to grant 5% of requested water supplies to contractors of the state water project. It provides water for 27 million people and some farmland. That's in addition to water for critical needs like bathing and drinking. The low allocation means people will be urged to conserve water by using less outside on landscaping. The announcement comes as the state braces for another dry year, not getting enough moisture during the winter. All right, that's it for the news. Some much needed moisture falling across areas of the south and western portions of the U.S. this week. But as more rain on the way, we'll have a check of your weather forecast next. Your U.S. Farm Report forecast is brought to you by Zoetis. Even though calves don't wait for the perfect weather to arrive, you can count on Zoetis to be there. Share a picture of your newest calf and you could win a calving season survival kit. Enter now at calvingseason.com. Matt Yurisovic joins us now with weather. Matt, some absolutely gorgeous weather greeted us when we entered Canada earlier this week, but rain then becoming the theme for the rest of the week. That rain though, a welcome sight for some areas of Southern and Western US. Yes, Tyne, it was a very welcome sight, although the western United States still has been very, very dry and it remains that way and is likely to continue over the next couple of months as we're not going to see a whole lot of moisture, but we'll see enough to maybe improve things just a little bit. Still got some uh, extreme to exceptional drought conditions, parts of Oklahoma down through Texas and New Mexico. Meanwhile, seeing some slight improvements up the east coast, so drought expected to either continue or worsen a little bit back there in the west. Meanwhile, it's going to stay pretty active across the east and we're going to be looking at a drought not expected to at least continue, but could improve in some areas where we have seen it already. Kind of goes right along with this pattern right here, staying active in the east as we head through Monday, keeping it very warm in the south. But as you notice, as we get into Tuesday, see this big dip in the jet stream back to the west. That right there is going to signify a change, perhaps some very much needed moisture back in the west 
western United States and comes right through the middle of the country and it's followed again by another dip in the jet stream. So it's a very active pattern as we head through next week and it looks likely to continue that way at least through next weekend, which is good news. So we start off on Monday with uh, sunshine in the east and we've got some rain moving in in the west. Meanwhile, just a little bit of light snow exiting with colder temperatures there across the Great Lakes and into the northeast. Wednesday, that's when it starts to get more active across the middle part of the country. Our first system of a few moving out through the middle part of the country, bringing some much needed rain, especially to parts of Texas, Oklahoma and Kansas and back in the West. More rain starting to move in. It's going to cool down for a couple days, but then become more active by the weekend. And then if we look towards Friday, we've got a lot of moisture here moving through the Great Lakes is kind of a one 2 punch here and then more rain and some thunderstorms coming up the East Coast. Meanwhile, staying warm in the south. We've got high pressure sunshine in control and another brief system dropping down into the northern Rockies with some higher elevation snow showers and some valley rain showers as well. We'll see more as we head towards the weekend. So temperatures this week looking below normal again because of that colder air up in the upper Midwest through the middle plains and over towards the east coast above normal though out ahead of that system and back in the west as well. So staying warm and staying dry, at least along the Pacific, but a large area across the country dealing with above normal precipitation, especially from the middle plains all the way through the east coast. And then if we look at next week, we'll be seeing those temperatures again, staying below average and staying more active as well. Time back to you. Thanks, Matt. Well, fertilizer news only got worse to start the week with a bit of good news then for Canadian farmers. So what impact could it have on acreage and prices? Well, our marketing discussion for March Classic Grain Farmers of Ontario happens next. U.S. Farm Report on the road at the 2022 March Classic is brought to you by Grain Farmers of Ontario. For more information, find us online at the address on your screen. Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend here from March Classic with Grain Farmers of Ontario. A big thank you for hosting us this week for this in-person event. We have Al Muscle, we have Bailey Elsinger, as well as Secretary Sunny Perdue joining us for this discussion today. Al, I want to start with you. We had a, a conclusion to the rail strike, it seems, only a two days that we saw workers not on strike. But there were a lot of concerns about what impact it would have on already short fertilizer supplies. Where do we set here as we head into the spring planting season? Is there enough fertilizer on hand at this point? Yeah, Tyne, we, we don't have any firm statistics. Um, <clears throat> with respect to Eastern Canada on uh, urea, which is a big concern, uh, you know, what I've heard is two thirds to 80% of the urea could be in place. But even if we're short 20%, 20% of a big number is big number. So that's, uh, that's a concern. Going back to the rail strike, you know, this, this was a big concern for agriculture with respect to obviously southbound pot, uh, potash into the U.S. But then also in the West where we're so short grain to feed livestock from a bad crop last year, there's a lot of corn movement up into from Nebraska, let's say, up into the West and that was under risk. Well, speaking of, of, of short, I mean, not seeing as many wheat, winter wheat, much winter wheat here as I expected, Bailey, and you get to the U.S. I know Eastern Corn Belt, we had some, you know, some acres, some additional acres that came there. Western Wheat Belt area really struggling there. But there was a problem in Michigan getting this wheat crop planted. I mean, are you concerned about wheat supplies as we head into kind of the, these harvest months? 
Yeah, so the USDA actually had Ohio uh, wheat acres higher uh, than a year ago. Uh, I think we'll continue to see that number fluctuate going forward in that northwest corner of the state. There were some challenges with the wet fall, similar to here in Ontario as well as Michigan. So I think we could see some interesting basis fluctuations this summer because of that lack of planted acres in mainly that Michigan, northern Ohio, southwest Ontario. Now, Secretary Purdue, I know you have experience on the on the, f- f- the the feed grain side of it, as well as the elevator side of it. And you know, Bailey spoke about basis. There's a lot of comparisons to 0809 right now, but I know that you you see a big difference as well. Well, there are differences. Obviously, similarities are future prices. But in 0809, I was in the grain elevator business in the Georgia and the Carolinas, and we saw cash prices lead futures up. This year is just the reverse. Is that Futures are here and basis is below, which gives uh, much more problems to the farmer producer uh, and elevators than it did uh, previously. Well, speaking of the problems, when you look at basis, how much of impact is logistics having on the basis that we're seeing from Ontario down to the eastern Corn Belt where you are, Michigan, Ohio, areas like that, Bailey? Certainly watching barge freight and rail freight and how that impacts our ability to get that product to the export. We continue to talk about export capabilities and and the the potential for more export business coming to the U.S., but we still got to get it there. And we're still struggling with that across Canada and across the U.S. Well, we're also still coming to terms with what the impact of the crisis in Ukraine is going to have on the overall trade picture right now. Our, our hearts, our thoughts go out to, to everyone in Ukraine right now. I can't imagine what it would be like thinking about putting a crop in as you're dealing with, with all of these, these issues. But you look at the realignment of world trade. What impact is it going to have possibly on Canadian producers, Al? Well, uh, you know, Canada is an export-oriented country, so uh, the, the potential ramifications longer term could be quite profound. Um, you know, there's been a lot reported about uh, wheat and the Black Sea as a source of wheat into particularly Middle Eastern, um, North African countries where a lot of the diet of calories comes from wheat flour. So that's an immediate food security issue. A second realignment has to do with corn and the Ukraine is a very large corn exporter. In fact, I I looked at, uh, you go back to 2020, uh, Ukraine was more than half the US in terms of a corn exporter. Well, a lot of those corn exports were going into feed livestock production in Europe, so you look at, at Spain as a major pork exporter, well, we, we know where the feed was, was coming from now, it was coming from Ukraine. Um, I understand that Spain and Italy now have emergency programs to assist the livestock sector, and we also worry now about chicken production in the Netherlands, also dependent on those feed grains. So that, you know, I, th- I think we know, or we should know that you can't take grain to livestock, you take livestock to grain, but yeah. this is what they've been doing in Europe. Secretary Purdue. Yeah, Ty, and I think this geopolitical uncertainty just adds one more major uncertainty to agriculture that had enough risk as it was. Will we uh, go back to our market rules-based, market-oriented uh, trading worldwide as we had done since the post-Soviet era, or will are we going to go back to more of allies and alliances there? We need to take a quick break right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, there's a major debate unfolding right now, and while some are questioning the timing of it, there's no shortage of opinions on either side of the aisle. Here's John Phipps. To my great surprise, along with more than a few senators who maybe weren't paying close attention, the Senate voted by unanimous consent to make daylight savings time permanent. 
what happens to it in the house is still hard to predict, but score this as one more sign of the apocalypse. I never thought this could possibly happen. But this now pours gasoline on the raging arguments about whether DST or standard time is better. Most people just dislike changing time twice a year. We could miss a genuine golden opportunity to end this meaningless squabble. Andy Woodruff, a cartographer and blogger, made some very helpful interactive maps. He brilliantly demonstrates why this came to be a perennial argument. Just Google his name and try the interactive maps yourself. By choosing a reasonable, whatever that means to you, sunrise or sunset time, the maps show how many days you are likely to be in sync with the sun and happy about it. Darker is fewer days. The lessons are clear, like avoiding living on the edge of any time zone. Don't ask how I know this. Live farther to the south to minimize daylight length changes. Above all, realize there are always trade-offs. These helpful graphics illuminate some of the issues, but he avoids advocating which time is better since it is relative to your location and preferences. But nobody is talking about the most logical solution. First, pick a time, either one and don't change. Then adjust schedules to fit. For instance, school beginning at 8 a.m. is not written on the back of the Constitution. Instead of snarling about kids getting on the bus in the dark, go to a school board meeting and campaign for your choice. The same for work hours. Maybe 9 to 5 works for your location, maybe not, but with employers already using flex time, four 10-hour days, on-call duties, and 24-7 operations, there are no standard workday hours. Remember, too, that the age of streaming and recording TV schedules are less important as well. Our schedules need not be defined by numbers on a wall and longitude. Today, we have an opportunity to democratically choose how our lives are timed regardless of our time zone. We may discover in the process whether our opinions match up or conflict with our neighbors. The crucial problem is changing time twice a year, not which one we choose. Or maybe we prefer to keep this on the list of things we like to gripe about rather than fix. Thanks, John. I'm sure many of you have your own thoughts on the topic. You can send those to mailbag at usfarmreport.com. All right, when we come back, a touch of Canada in Tractor Tales. Machinery Feet joins us next. Hey, folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week's classic iron comes to us from Quebec, Canada. The Ferguson enthusiasts of North America show off a 1957 Gold 35. This is the tractor that uh, Ferguson built. There's something special. They want to, uh, to leave the gray, the, the only gray tractor they have, and they want to make some, some more color scheme. That was the first change uh, for Ferguson. So they put their 35 models in a, in a scheme that is still maintained the gray and changed the belly for gold. So they call it, they call it a golden gray tractor. So it stands in production for 11 months only. They change back the color to the red one. That's we know uh, already, this still exists now in Massey Ferguson. 
We encountered those tractors very few in, in the U.S. and in Canada. It's common in Great Britain and Ireland, the golden gray, but these tractors in America, they are very rare. It weights uh, 3,500 pounds. And uh, lots of uh, farmers uh, put calcium in, in the rear wheel and bring it to 4,500 pounds. So that makes a good puller. Thanks, Greg. Well, continuing with our Canadian theme, farmers have been dealt their fair share of challenges fertilizer issues to mother nature and pairing wheat planting last fall but that's not dampening moods heading into planting here in canada we'll tell you why next u.s farm report is produced and distributed by farm journal broadcast welcome back to u.s farm report trusted timely tradition Welcome back. Well, as we're on the road from Grain Farmers of Ontario's March Classic, Ontario is massive. It's an area that made international headlines recently for the trucker strike that brought traffic to a halt in some major cities. But if you travel in the countryside, you'll find stories of resilience, a plot that has withstood the challenges thrown by COVID, Mother Nature, and supply chain chaos. And this weekend, we show you why grain farmers here in Ontario are optimistic about the year ahead. Farmers in Ontario, Canada. I have everything I need locked in, yeah. So uh, we're, uh, we're okay. Same with the fertilizer. We're, uh, we're all, all, all set that way. Are facing some of the same challenges as those in the U.S. are battling this spring with big questions about fertilizer. Well, it's, it's going to be a concern, and it's going to be mainly about the price more than the, than the supply, I think. But even supply isn't a guarantee unless you have it already on your farm. Well, you talk to the retailers, they say they're okay to start the season. Well, supplies may be there to start the season. It's side dressing and after winter wheat harvest that is stirring up some debate. We harvest wheat here in July, and then a lot of fertilizer goes down after wheat in, on, the, on the wheat ground. That, that might be a bigger issue now this year. Just ask real agriculture resident agronomist Peter Johnson. Particularly in eastern Canada, because 85 to 90% of our nitrogen is sourced out of Russia, and we don't get all of that in in the fall. Fertilizer is the biggest unknown for eastern Canada right now, as fall applied nitrogen isn't a common practice on these soils. Somewhere around a quarter of our nitrogen is still on its way here, and that means that if it doesn't arrive, we're in a very tough spot. Eastern Canada is at high risk. Planting in southwest Ontario won't really gear up until the 1st of May, but it's still a race against the calendar this year. The end of June is sort of the drop dead date for us. If there's no nitrogen there, we're going to grow corn with a lot less nitrogen and that will mean lower yields. Farmers like Brendan Burney. I certainly think that we're on par that we should have it here. Have a first-hand look at the fertilizer frenzy. As a farmer and chair of Grain Farmers of Ontario, he's made it his mission to secure the necessary fertilizer for spring. Um, we've been able to work with the provincial government to kind of escalate it a little bit because we had some boats that were close to Canadian waters, but we weren't sure they were going to actually get their paperwork to get unloaded. Um, but those were allowed in. They have unloaded. And he says with about 20% of the fertilizer still not in Ontario, each vessel filled with fertilizer is vital. Some were not even tied to Russia, um, so there was some confusion there. 
from boats stuck at sea to shipments facing a steep tariff on arrival. The crisis in Ukraine and sanctions on Russia is causing shipping concerns for vessels already at sea. Well, at this point, like there are other places in the world that would take the fertilizer regardless. And I think that that's where we're competing against. So in this case, if if fertilizer was paid for in the fall that was supposed to be here and now you're looking at a tariff on it, it's hurting more the Ontario farmer at this point because the money's already exchanged hands. Another potential crisis was averted earlier this week as Canadian Pacific rail workers strike only lasted two days. Thanks partially to key conversations about the issues it could spark. We're uh, a month and a little bit away from some people possibly putting corn in the ground. So we don't have a lot of leeway to, to just shift and, and get fertilizer elsewhere or inputs elsewhere. So we did try to stress that like the biggest, I guess, discussion point for us is keep them at the table so that a solution come, can come sooner rather than later. The fertilizer bet is one that could shift some acres in Ontario. We source a lot of phosphorus out of Russia. I know that there is was to be a boatload of MAP coming from Russia into Ontario this spring. Uh, whether we get that boatload of MAP or not, we don't know. And without it, it really will make the situation quite, quite hard to manage. But the options here are vast. Corn, soybeans, wheat, canola, barley and oats, as well as vegetables. But Johnson says farmers are doing everything they can to stick to the rotation. It's a day by day situation and we do have more time because we can get till the end of June. But how do you find nitrogen supplies in, in that time frame is really tough. Winter wheat is a staple in Ontario, but thanks to a wet fall, those acres saw a sharp drop this year. We're way down, uh, probably two thirds of normal. Snowfall this winter has been steady, which means the soil moisture will be prime this spring. A bright spot as Canadian farmers face a unique battle with a federal carbon tax. It's an escalator here that goes from now till 2030, uh, raising each year for, per the metric tons that you're using. But Bernie says grain farmers of Ontario have been making the case to federal government that agriculture is the solution, not the problem. In terms of grain drying, we've had people take corn off with a just on their own farm and have $10,000 in carbon tax paid out of their pocket. And that's money that would be invested in the farm, would be invested in the community. On the farm level, supply chain issues are similar to what U.S. farmers face as well. And the trucker strike that garnered national attention recently didn't really impact those in the middle of farm country here. Other than getting a few parts that you needed, it didn't really affect us too, too much. You know, you, you, we all saw what was going on. And, and uh, but as far as impacting the, the farm itself, you know, in the middle of winter, it didn't really affect us much. No matter the challenge, grain farmers in Ontario have consistently answered the call. We've shown them that we are a resilient sector. Whether it's COVID, the environment, we're here to, to be part of the, uh, the good story that comes out of Ontario. As grain farmers of Ontario say, farmers here always find a way to get it done. Well, commodity prices have been one of those bright spots. From the impact of the crisis in Ukraine to a softer focus on trade, though, our marketing roundtables reemerge from the Grain Farmers of Ontario March Classic next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Firestone Ag. The Firestone Ag Dealer Network offers you the support, inventory, and resources you need. Visit FirestoneAg.com to find your local certified dealer. U.S. Farm Report on the road at the 2022 March Classic is brought to you by Grain Farmers of Ontario. 
For more information, find us online at the address on your screen. Welcome back to our roundtable discussion. Art Bailey, we haven't talked much about acreage. A lot of things at play right now. There's been a lot of talk for months about how the fertilizer and chemistry situation, how that would ultimately impact acreage. But as you talk to producers right now, do you think we're going to see a big switch this year? I'm actually not in that camp. You look at west of the Mississippi, we had a record anhydrous run last fall. So those acres are probably locked into corn, barring a mother nature situation changing that, right? Um, I think we're probably close to that 91 million corn, 89 million beans, potentially a little bit more corn, depending on how many we can pull from cotton, right, uh, Secretary? So I don't think we see much switching. Well, and that's at a time when prices are extremely competitive. Not a lot of cotton here in Canada, but in the U.S. at least, we have cotton prices this week that hit the highest level since 2011. I mean, it seems like cotton right now was really trying to bid for some of those acres. Do you think we could see that in places like Georgia pull away from, 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 from soybeans? Well, I think, again, in, in Georgia, you may know that cotton and peanuts are those competitive crops that then drove back and forth. In the 08 run-up, 09, we saw much of that uh, delta cotton go into grains in that way, bean and, and corns and bean, and many of them sold their cotton headers and, uh, and bought grain headers in that way. Uh, I think, again, you'll see a balance. I think, again, uh, Bailey, I believe her numbers, you're gonna see some balance between beans and corn. And in our cotton and peanut areas, you're probably gonna see those farmers continue to stay with those crops, cotton prices there. Uh, we're, we don't do enough feed grains in that part of the world to really matter on the overall supply demand. Well, Bailey, you know, I had an analyst on the show last weekend that said, listen, nothing would surprise me when it comes to this acreage report. There's always a surprise. This year is no different. What could maybe some of those surprises be possibly? potentially throwing out a much larger corn acre number you know do they come out with 93 or 94 million do they drop that bean acre number based on you know a six dollar corn futures number uh, again I tend to agree nothing surprises me in 2022 right now as you look at the global situation every acre possible both in the US and Canada is, is, is what's needed there's not a lot of supply just setting around yeah the, the, the immediate term situation is is wheat uh, the dilemma we have in a lot of the countries that were dependent upon Black Sea sources, that's winter wheat, and of course our winter wheat acreage is set. Uh, spring wheat, there's a discussion, well maybe we'd ramp up the spring wheat. Well, they're not perfect substitutes by any means, so there's some issues uh, there. The dilemma that you have is you know, what we've been saying with regard to cotton. Um, in Western Canada, where we have our big acres of spring wheat, you know, so goes spring wheat, so goes canola, and what I have heard growers say there, there's some areas that are desperately dry. They might look to switch to spring wheat, but for the most part, I think the market says grow canola. So I don't know how much spring wheat's coming. When you look at the drought situation, Bailey, in the, in the West, luckily we're hearing some rains in, in areas of, of, of Texas and some of the plains. Uh, you know, drought is going to have an impact on uh, planting decisions this year, but in the East, it seems like we're already talking about possible planting delays. Yeah, always we're looking at those moisture issues, um, excess moisture in parts of Indiana, parts of Ohio. Uh, long time, right? It, it's only March. Long time till we have to worry about putting a planter in the field, I think. Rain makes grain. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe too much of a good thing in some areas and desperately need it in, in others. Uh, but as we look at really what's driving prices right now, last week, Bailey, it seems like funds had really exited. There wasn't a lot of action. It seems like almost holiday trade is what some analysts had said. 
this week has that changed? Are we seeing funds enter the market once again? With the Fed announcements in the U.S. about interest rates, it seems as though the outside money is looking at it as a hedge against inflation again. So we're seeing that outside money kind of come back into the markets here the last two days and, and really get interested, especially in the wheat market again. And now this week, seeing mainstream media talk about food scarcity, talking about the issue of food right now and in some of those publications. Um, a lot of people say, well, that may be the end of the rally when you see everyone talking about it, but you look at these prices. I mean, can you compare it to anything in history? Well, really, I, th I think the dilemma we have is we, we, we have to look at the volumes involved and then the price is kind of residual from it. And we, we don't have uh, past experience with these kinds of shifts in volumes. So, look, when you're short, the price is going to go up. But, you know, I can say as an economist, I don't know by how much, and I don't think really anybody does, right? The, the, the dilemma is that our stocks are short, and a lot of those stocks are in places where they're unlikely to be redeployed to areas of scarcity. That's the most honest thing I've ever heard an economist say. <laughs> Admitting they don't know? <laughs> Well, thank yep. you all for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you all. All right, we need to take a quick break, and then we'll have much more on U.S. Farm Report when we come back. Well, it's a business that was born during COVID, and now everyone just seems to want to be Andy Clean. Andy Clean, so have you heard? Andy Pastor is an Ontario farmer first. I've always been a, a stickler for clean equipment. Who's also known on social media for his ability to make any tractor shine. It's always just kind of been the way I am. But it wasn't until he started posting pictures of his clean equipment on Twitter that Andy Clean started to take off. Actually, it was a farmer from Michigan, and he'll, he'll yell at me if I don't mention his name. His name is Robert Reese, and he's from Lansing. So, yeah, he's the one who came up with the hashtag, so he wants royalties now. <laughs> what started as anyone who posted a photo of clean equipment got an Andy Clean sticker has now turned into a business. And the story really started with a family vacation a few years ago. I was out to Iowa at the John Deere Tractor Museum with uh, my family. We went on a family vacation and I commented on Twitter. I said how everything was so Andy Clean out there. Next thing he knew, John Deere's social media account reached out. Later on, they actually created the logo and like gave me a box with like a thousand stickers in them, stickers in the box. And yeah, I was like, what am I going to do with all these stickers? So I knew the first guys on Twitter who kept all their stuff pretty clean. So I just I said, hey, what's your address? And I, I shipped them out. The logo, the decals, all created there. by John Deere. We made a, the black and silver one for all the guys who don't run John Deere equipment. But as the Andy Clean craze took off, he had an idea to try to recoup some of his costs from shipping the stickers around the globe. It was never really in my mind to make a soap. I had a lot of people asking me, hey Andy, what kind of soap are you using and stuff like that. It just kind of clicked where I said, I might as well try and create something. And so he did. His own soap that was built by a farmer and tested by farmers all across Ontario. Yeah, what makes it the Andy Clean soap is just indifferent is it's farmer built. That's what it is. It's farmer built right from the ground up. And now as Andy works to build a network of John Deere dealers to retail his Andy Clean soap, he knew exactly where to start. None other than his local John Deere dealer. So I just called him up. I said, hey, Justin, you guys interested in retailing this? And Justin Englehart, parts manager at Huron Tractor, didn't really hesitate with his answer. I had been following it for quite a while, so it was a no-brainer for me, that's for sure. 
So you immediately said yes? Immediately said yes. Yeah, I think I might even cut them off halfway through and just said, yep, just send me the order form. So. <laughs> The product has been in place here at Huron Tractor's Exeter location for a week, and already it's creating big buzz. Lots of interest, yep, for sure. I think we've sold three or four today even, and it's, it's selling quick. As he says, the marketing team at John Deere, along with key connections on Twitter, have been the foundation of his success. They were tweeting the Andy Queen stuff, and yeah, that's, that's the cool part about it. So yeah, those, those are the people I have to thank for it. As the business takes off, Andy says he really doesn't even consider it a business right now. It's just good, clean fun. A bright spot that came from social media over the past couple years. Thanks to Andy, he actually had me try the product out. I won't even do that at home, okay, Andy? So you should feel fortunate about that. All right, we need to take a quick break, and then when we come back, John Phipps. The 2022 Bracket Busters Challenge, presented by Case IH, is underway. Who's still in the game? To find out, head to AgWeb now through April 4th to check the leaderboard. Well, driving through Ontario, one thing is very apparent, the focus on green energy. And in the U.S., the loss of Russian oil is causing a resurgence of debate over oil imports. John Phipps has more in customer support. This is from Gary Morrison, quoting the watchman. The Department of Energy was instituted on 8477 to lessen our dependence on foreign oil. And now it's 2022, 45 years later, and the budget for this necessary department is at $242 billion a year. It has 16,000 federal employees and approximately 100,000 contract employees. And look at the job it has done. In 34 years ago, 30% of our oil consumption was foreign imports. Today, 30% of our oil consumption is foreign imports. Gary, please send me your address for your mug. I checked on these assertions. Some are flat out wrong. The DOE is responsible for U.S. nuclear weapons programs, nuclear reactor production for the U.S. Navy, and that's what I was familiar with, energy-related research and domestic energy production and energy conservation. It was created during the oil crisis, which helped politically, but it was soon dominated by their nuclear responsibilities, especially after Three Mile Island. You can tell by how their budget of $45 billion is allocated. The blue bars are government employees, the green are contractors, mostly in the 17 major research labs like Argonne or Los Alamos. The term contract employee itself is misleading. Contractors are not employees. Ask any Uber driver. Much of the DOE budget is for programs like nuclear weapons research, fusion, alternative energy, and cleaning up stuff. As for our dependence on foreign oil, I know you've seen this before, but I consider net petroleum imports to be the true measure of oil trade. And we've hovered at about zero recently, largely due to fracking and conservation measures. We export a significant amount of finished products like gasoline while importing geographically advantageous crude from nearby countries. At any rate, in 1977, 83% of our oil imports were from OPEC countries. In 2021, it was about 8%. 70% of our imports come from Canada and Mexico. The DOE is not nearly so much about oil as other energy sources and cleaning up nuclear reactors. Between research and market forces, the record of the DOE with a budget of about 
0.5% of the total federal budget and one-fifth that of the Ag Department is not that bad. Oil independence is a questionable goal for a global commodity, but it did happen under DOE's watch. Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, it's a site that you don't see every day. Machinery lining the National Mall in Washington, D.C. will tell you what drove the national display. That's next. Well, just on the other side of the border, it's not every day you see Washington, D.C. lined with ag equipment, but it was a special occasion this week in a tribute to agriculture in the most fitting way. Check it out. This is the site that you saw on the National Mall earlier this week in Washington, D.C. The National Ag Day celebration was complete with a showcase celebrating modern agriculture. The Agriculture Council of America and the Association of Equipment Manufacturers teamed up to host the event and orchestrating it all and bringing in the equipment over the weekend, which I imagine was quite the feat. It was all to celebrate National Ag Day. And while a National Ag Day celebration happens every year, this year the festivities were kicked up a notch as the equipment brought policymakers and those in Washington a first-hand view of the machinery that helps drive efficiency on U.S. farms today. Well, that does it for our show from right here at March Classic. A big thank you to Grain Farmers of Ontario for hosting us, and hopefully you learned a thing or two as we gave you a taste of Ontario agriculture. Well, make sure to join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.